But I don't believe that man was made to be controlled by machines. Machines can make laws, but they cannot preserve justice. Only human beings can do that. I hate computers and refuse to be bullied by them. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We are more than machines. The revolution is getting nearer. What's the company policy on that? Try to understand, Adric. Because you get away with something, it doesn't justify it. All my travelings throughout the universe, I have battled against evil, against power-mad conspirators. I should have stayed here. The oldest civilization. Decadent, degenerate, and rotten to the core. Power mad conspirators, Daleks, Sontarans, Cybermen. They're still in the nursery compared to us. Ten million years of absolute power. That's what it takes to be really corrupt. Blow up that vehicle. Society is built upon a wheel of change. Prevent change and you prevent advancement. Only stagnation is left. Do you agree? Without change, we die. Never give up. Never give in. Think I don't know that? Because this is my life, Jackie. It's not fun, it's not smart. It's just standing up and making a decision. Because nobody else will. Major clothes. This Dalek Empire is big enough to slaughter the cosmos. They've got to be stopped. They've been running your lives for a very long time now, so keep this straight in your head. We are not fighting an alien invasion. We're leading a revolution. And today the battle begins. They're not your rescuers. They're your replacements. The end point of capitalism. A bottom line where human life has no value at all. We're fighting an algorithm. A spreadsheet. Like every worker everywhere. We're fighting the suits. The systems aren't the problem. How people use and exploit the system. That's the problem. On the podcast, Who Cares, the two old enemies were finally put on trial. They say they listened calmly as the list of their evil posts was read and sentence passed. Then I made my last, and they thought somewhat curious, request. I demanded that they, two rival posters, should record an exchange Kablam writer Pete McTie had after the Twelfth Doctor's announcement on their home website, Twitter. It was a request they should never have granted. Thrilled. Hashtag Doctor Who. Pretty good choice, yeah. Excellent choice. Now we just need the other urgently required change.
you and me riding through the show, yum. Or if me, yum. You can't be hanging around for much longer, sure. All of these things would be great. Who cares? Episode 7. Kablam. So I wanted to know all your thoughts on Pete profaning the moth. I'm, I'm okay with it. It's, it's fine. It'd be stifling if everyone had the same opinion. So having someone who wouldn't exactly so fond of the first series or moth series is all right. But if you didn't, it's not that bad, I don't think. That's an interesting take, Neil. So, uh, Code, what do you think of Pete profaning the moth? The tweet from was, was from like 2013 era, right? Like, so more or less, yeah. So, I'm not really surprised by his attitude to Moffat at that point because I think a lot of people felt that way. Uh, it was around the sort of end of series six and series seven that people they weren't very confident in his writing abilities, and there's probably a lot of like behind the scenes stuff for the, the reason that it kind of felt weird quality wise. But, um, I don't know, I don't think it's uh, surprising considering the time and mm-hmm. i don't really hold it against him okay okay mainly because at th- that time i also thought similar and look how much my opinions changed now i think moth's great yeah yeah mirrors what do you think of pete profaning them off behead those who insult moffat <laughs> that's a bit violent much more to my liking moth <laughs> what do you think of the profanity in question uh, i completely agree with uh, with code um, 2013 was a bad time for Doctor Who, let's be honest. It was a bad time for fans uh, prior to Day of the Doctor because nobody really trusted him Moffat anymore. Between the end of Series 5 and the Day of the Doctor, uh, Series 6 had largely flopped. I mean, sure, there were some great episodes, and he'd, uh, as ever, he'd written a great opening story. Mm. Um, and there were some there were some corpus in, in series seven, but it, it's the, and there were there were some great moments as to be expected with Moffat. But to not trust him with Doctor Who, I think at the time was unacceptable. Thing. Okay, I think it's good we've all made our opinions right or wrong on this matter known. What I think we should do is discuss everything we can before Kira is killed, because I think the last ten minutes of the episode are obviously such a reaction-inducing thing that they deserve kind of their own discussion. I don't want that to overload everything. So I think we should discuss everything, not the ending, from Kablam first. Like, why don't we start talking about how the episode starts with a Tenet reference to the red hat that Tenet wore on the 50th? (laughs) 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 Fucking hell, Neil. Uh, I thought that was good, this Tenet reference. Well, it's not actually a Tenet reference, just so everyone's clear. I thought it was really good that it essentially called back to that line. The Eleven said that he planned to buy a Fez. So you're, you're sort of seeing the end of this little... Well, I want to say arc, but it's not really, I guess. <laughs> um, this little Fez buying arc. And we it's find the closest thing to an arc we've had in Series Eleven yeah, so far. pretty much, yeah. It's so true. You finally get the payoff. It's interesting that it is actually continuity heavy as well. Yeah. Yeah, the two Tenet references in the episode, it actually, it's nowhere near Moff's level of somehow having the Mondasian Cybermen and, you know, elements from old Pertwee serials feeling of a kind with New Who. But it was, uh, was it the first time 
except for in the uh, a man and labor when we have the flashes of like the old silurians other than that this is the first time it kind of felt like the show of the last 55 years the two continuity references so yeah i, th- I thought that was interesting stuff yeah I, what, what did you think about the uh, the agatha christie reference how, how did you feel in that moment i liked it because there could have been any other kind of dodgy oh i i once did a kooky thing with the celebrity line we've been getting all series except this actually was something that's happened like when I, some new Who episodes that I watched before seeing the classic episodes they referenced, I didn't get that it was like a reference. So I think it was cool that new Who can do that to itself now. Mm. I think that's sort of the beauty of it, isn't it? It's the, it's the fact that the, uh, occasionally the Doctor will reference something that's happened previously and we've seen it. I thought it was an interesting choice of episode to reference, specifically because this is also a uh, whodunit with heavy use of red herring written by a writer uh, uh we yeah, can touch we'll, on that later we'll say, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get there later i was going there too but yeah and also there's a whole scene from gridlock in it the uh scene on the conveyor belt it's very similar to a scene from oh gridlock. yeah the cso in that scene was pretty interesting wasn't it i liked it it was dumb but it was fun i didn't think it looked too bad i thought it looked all right for what it was yeah, I quite liked the scene. The problem was the acting. Speaking of um, references, as we were saying earlier, I want to ask Nilstow this specifically because I know we both like the story a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thirteen mentioned robophobia. Yeah. <laughs> Could this be a reference to that great audio that introduced Liv, now the famous companion starring the acclaimed Ravenous audios? I think that if it was a reference to that, it would have been a lot more explicit. They'd have been- maybe mentioned you know, a few exterior details for it. I was just wondering if Pete's probably the type of fan that may have possibly listened to oh, a big possibly, finish. Yeah. yeah. I think I'd, um, out of anyone so far this series, I'd say that if there was anyone who would listen to a, a, a big finish audio, I'd say it would probably be him. If there's anyone that's read a new series adventure, we know it's Vinay. Yeah. I think the, the semantics of the word, of them saying, oh, don't say that, that's robophobic. I think it, because in Robots of Death, they make a very small deal about uh, this is like a real medical condition and people have this all over and it's almost debilitating for them. But she gives this sort of glib, uh, it doesn't say that, that's not very nice. And it's sort of like, ha ha funny. If it was a reference to Robots of Death or maybe Robophobia itself, I'd feel like it'd be a bit more um, serious. But if that's not what they're going for, then... I don't really know. Speaking of the robots of death, do we all know that before in series seven, when Moffat forced Stephen Thompson to write uh, Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, he pitched a prequel to the robots of death? Yeah, I knew that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. My no, was not aware. Uh, I think that if it was a, a direct se- prequel or sequel, it might not have been so good, but if it was set on, um, on Caldor or around it, I think it would have been too bad if they'd have gone like the robophobia away with it. I wouldn't have minded. You know, we've still got to listen to Ravenous 2 together, which does oh, have yeah. a sequel to The Robots of Death with Liv. Yeah. I haven't read up anything about from the fact that they're like fucking space clowns or something, <laughs> which is an odd choice, I think. Maybe it's Big Finish parodying themselves finally. Yeah, maybe. Speaking of clownishness, at the start of the episode, the Kablam bot warps onto the TARDIS, the same TARDIS that I remember Nine saying the hordes of Genghis Khan couldn't get through even when they tried. How come we could get on the TARDIS so easily? Am I nitpicking way too hard here? They didn't have a teleport though. Yeah, I was going to say that. Okay, uh, you are. You are definitely nitpicking. 
because uh, it was the same opening as The Great Show in the Galaxy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, um, they're off doing something auxiliary, it doesn't really matter what they're doing, and then all of a sudden it just turns up and it almost starts the same. I think there's a, a scene before that in Greatest Show, but it does start very similarly. Yeah. It's a bit concerning though, because the Doctor, also maybe it would be a reference, I guess, but the Doctor didn't let the Kablam Man on the TARDIS, it just sort of forced its way in. Mm. Which is, what sort of technology does Kablam have that it can get past TARDIS's defences. Like, obviously this was probably something they didn't really think about. It was just a sort of easy way for the Kablam to be introduced, but it mm. it almost worries you. Maybe this is how Pete got himself into the writer's room. <laughs> Chibnall and the others were sitting there together and Pete just warped in and forced himself <laughs> to be part of the story. If it had been up to me, I'd have probably put a scene before it arrived. So I'd have had it then talking about um, just menial things. And then all of a sudden she goes, oh, there's a problem here. Um, something's coming towards us. And then this is where the um, the title is, a. it doesn't have cold openings anymore. So yeah. that's prefaced the cold opening, then the titles, and then it arrives or it order that around somewhere. But I feel like the fact that it starts and within the first 20 seconds, it's already on there. It feels like there needs to be like a previous scene before that. Yeah. But I feel, I feel like it functions all right without it, but it would, benefit from it. It would benefit the characters as well because mm. it's essentially an extra scene we could have with sort of development of the TARDIS team which mm. the amount of episode, episodes we're in right now you'd expect that we would already had plenty of that but it still doesn't really feel that way. We know more about Yaz's gran than we do Yaz and yeah, that's mad exactly. considering she's only in one episode. <laughs> yeah like it, it doesn't make sense to me. Although speaking of Yaz, um, not to diverge too much, I did appreciate that Pete sort of remembered that she has these skills, you know, yeah. being yes. a police officer. I thought that was so good and it was like the first time yes. since the first episode that anyone seems to remember that these companions have had a life outside of yeah. the TARDIS. Yeah, I think Pete was quite good at that. He, he did a lot about Ryan's part or the Doctor, uh, quite a bit about Yaz obviously there. And, um, but, uh, I mean, nothing about Graham. I think the elephant in the room now is Tozin's acting. Yeah. It's it's so bad. It is so lifeless. And I thought in the first episode that it was already quite terrible. But I remember <laughs> it wasn't the filming of the first episode quite early on. So um, I may be wrong here. But I was expecting it to sort of improve as you got further along. So that maybe he mm. was just warming up to the role. But he didn't. He <laughs> Awful. You don't even have to watch his acting development in order. Yeah, exactly. It, I even thought that he, he was horrible in Demons. Like that was probably one of the major criticisms of the episode. And then it, it just didn't improve in Kablam. It's never improved. So I don't. Was know Ryan in Demons? Barely. I don't think he was. <laughs> Superficially, maybe. That was the episode where he switched places with Yaz. I think. Mm. The funny thing with Ryan is, I like he's clearly the worst actor, but I enjoy him so much more than the other two companions, just because he's mm. such an American having a laugh with the role. Like, it's not even just the where's the reload stuff. He's just obviously having more of a laugh with it and taking it less seriously. Uh, it just I find him more energ energizing to watch. Really? Like maybe in some scenes, like the and Ghost <laughs> Monument, but to me, he drains all the life out of every season. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like honestly. I, I can't get over it. Like again, not to reference demons too much because we're actually talking about Kablam, but demons. He he honestly 
was so boring to watch. He doesn't react to anything with any sense of wonder or excitement. It's always just the same <laughs> note, deadpan the entire time. What about when his gun ran out of bullets? Okay, that that was that was like the only exception. Like that's what gave me hope for the rest of the series. I thought he was going to be better, and he isn't. That was his Adric in Keeper of Tracken. That was his one decent. Let's go for it. Let's try acting this time. <laughs> I, I thought he had a similar moment in Arachnids when he started playing the grime. He was really into it. He was bouncing his arms around. Robertson was very confused. Doing this, the uh, the uh, shadow puppets. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, there's little bits of life in him, but I don't know why he can't have that consistently. You know, it, it's just like I, occasionally it shines through. But I have a theory. What is your theory? Well, those moments from Arachnids. And to, an ex- and to a lesser extent, the moment from Ghost Monument, those aren't exactly dialogue-heavy moments. Yeah. Yeah, it's very uh, sort of physical acting in those cases. And maybe he's better at that, because I don't think he's necessarily entirely bad. He just, he never puts any emotion in his voice when he speaks. So if you just go by the dialogue, if this were a big finish, you know, uh, audio... <laughs> You honestly wouldn't be able to tell what Ryan was thinking half the time because he just doesn't... He's just utterly monotone. He's Paul McGann. Oi. (laughs) Don't Um, you dare. I'd like to say that I actually think that this was Tozen's best episode. Um, He was was better here. Yeah. He, He seemed to be a little bit more in its element. He complained earlier that oh, I'm back here. I'm, I'm, it feels like I'm at work again. I've come halfway across the galaxy and I'm back at work. And that familiarity almost made him seem more at home. So he, uh, and see posts yeah. on the board about them saying, oh, he's a bit introvert. And I sort of might get that now. I didn't feel it earlier. But um, he seemed a lot more at home. And another thing to mention is that, again, Yaz has been doing things and she's actually been exhibiting this done in the past. He's mentioning his dyspraxia again, which is quite nice. And it almost makes you go, oh, look, he's, um, he's sort of evolving as a character. And I thought that was quite nice. What gets me is that it's only two series back that we had Jenna Coleman as the companion, mm. and now it's Tozen Cole. <laughs> it's mm. like Jib's trying to make the show more prestigious, but yeah. Because I thought the um, when they'd announced the casting, we we saw the video of him. It was like an independent film, I think, of his kid, and he was acting really well. And I thought, oh, if this is the caliber of what we're going in for, um, you know, it'll be good. But he's he's just been awful throughout the entire thing so far. And I think this is the fact that he's starting to get into his element in episode seven is really bad. I'm not sure it's bad on his part, but it's bad on someone's part. Near as I can, add, I can make sure that came in cleanly. Don't worry. Okay. That was completely undermined. It's mm. like Jib's trying to make the show more prestigious, but yeah. And it's weird because I thought the um when they'd announced the casting, we we saw the video of him. It was like an independent film, I think, with his kid. I was gonna say it's it's like that's kind of the whole cast really they were clearly good buddies off camera and they have pretty decent chemistry and 
they have a lot of fun. And then they turn on the camera and now we're in Doctor Who mode. Mm-hmm. Only when I say Doctor Who, I'm talking about the bad pejorative sense that the general public has when they refer to Doctor Who mode. Not the Dorium sense. What else is in the episode that isn't the ending to discuss? <laughs> oh, what did you think of the production design? Like how Kablam actually looked? I thought it was nice for once. Uh, I don't know. Arvo seemed to really outdo himself sometimes. But I think... It's not hard. Yeah, it's not hard. Uh, I like the office setting. That was very nice. I like the, I like the office. I, d- I didn't really get the grand scheme idea of it all. Everyone's saying how big it is and how many workers they have. And uh, it just didn't, even on, on the scene where the TARDIS lands, you didn't see the scale of Kablam. That is good. That Yeah, because we had the stuff about how we are the authorities. Kablam is its own jurisdiction. Mm. I'm not getting into the politics of that. I'm just saying that Kablam is meant to be huge its own jurisdiction, like a almost like a sovereign company state unto mm. itself. Uh, I don't really thought of that, but yeah, we only see the warehouse and it doesn't feel that big because it's clearly like the three sets they could afford. I like the design of the sets itself, but yeah, you're right, the scale wasn't done that great. In, in that scene of the materialization, they, they, I feel like in a Moth episode, it would have been uh, zoomed out and they would have done a little bit of a a, a tour around the yeah the, 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 you know the, the, there would have been some kind of feel for Kablam being this this huge thing yeah a CGI copy and paste of like a bunch of cells or whatever like into the distance communicating this is really really big like they use that trick all the time in um, Moffat's series to make things look huge but we didn't really get that we just got that just nice like wide shot yeah. Um, speaking of CGI copy and paste, fucking hell, that materialization. I was about to say the exact same thing. It was so awful. Like, and it it wasn't, it was just so noticeable how bad it was. I don't know what they were thinking. Like, it almost seems like it was a, uh, a temporary thing before they put in, like, proper CGI or something. They forgot halfway through. Remember when everyone was really hyped that, uh, we had the 2049, uh, uh, people. The, the, uh, the, what was it? This is sort of CGI. Oh yeah, the, um, the company. Yeah. Wait, when was the episode set, like, in the fictional world? I think it's in the future, but it didn't specify when. Yeah, and... They yeah. didn't even specify if they were human or not. Yeah, I was assuming it was, like, a human colony. Um, mm. But also, then it'd be far off in the future, but... Yeah, there was no, like, sort of setup, if that made sense, like, of, of the context. Yeah. Something that confused me was... At the, at the start, we get Kablam delivering to the TARDIS, but then we kind of get told that it seems that Kablam only delivers to Kandoka, the planet. Like, I mm. never quite yeah. get the sense, is this a galactic company or is it just serving that one planet that it's yeah, the moon of? Exactly, because especially because if, if you're assuming that this is Eleven who put in the order, why why would he put in the order for such a sort of specific company in a specific planet? Or, well, moon, I guess. Yeah, they weren't even designing the Fez. They were just delivering it. Doesn't he say something about it being the biggest um, delivery company in the galaxy? Yeah, it's a bit odd that they're a delivery company that just delivers to presumably, if not that one planet, then just that one galaxy. And yet they're sending uh, teleport pulses into the time vortex? That's a little odd. Yeah, like I said, it's... That's a little odd. Yeah, like I said, it's... Odd. Yeah, like I said, like I said, it's like it implies something about their technology that is somehow, you know, far advanced to what it should be. You know, if they're only supplying Kandoka with, you know, 
Amazon packages, basically. Uh, why suddenly do they have the technology to send a Kablam man into the vortex and infiltrate a TARDIS? Like, where did that come from? And again, I, I just don't think Pete thought about it very hard. You know, it was just sort of a way to introduce Kablam very quickly and, you know, uh, set things up for the episode. But it has a sort of weird implication for the advancement of Kablam, you know? I was just saying my own personal idea was that when he'd wanted to buy this Fez, he bought it on Kandoka. And they said, oh, we didn't have any at the moment. We'll send it to you wherever you are. And he said, oh, yeah, sure. Um, this is where you can find me on the TARDIS. And it's taken this long for it to get to him. Oh, that's a really good that idea, makes sense. actually. It yeah, has like been that. over 2,000 years. Maybe it took them that long to figure out how to get to the TARDIS. Hmm. Maybe they just completely forgot. They just said, oh, um, we got this thing to send off. Just, yeah, just send it off. He'll get it. It's fine. And it's taken him 2,000 years to get very amusing, actually. I like that idea. Yeah, it broke through the rift at the heart of the Medusa Cascade. <laughs> Another thing about the company that I thought is odd, uh, relating specifically to scale, is we're told that this is a, refresh my memory, it's a 10% human workforce? Yeah, I think so. And we'll give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that there's at least twice as many people working than we see. So let's say that's about 20 people. Mm. And by uh, process of mathematics, that would be about, what, 180 other robots? And mm. they're serving a whole planet or possibly a whole galaxy? Well, you could probably count all the delivery men. <laughs> and this yeah, I am. <laughs> really? Oh, well, the, um, the idea of this is that this we only see one factory there could be multiple there could be like hundreds of them yeah it's got to be that but it's just such a weird thing that we're sort of presented with what appear to be fairly high up people in the ranking mm. with um uh i'm sorry i didn't catch the character's names i only saw it once uh you know clipboard lady and uh judy. the other guy judy was the ceo as well i think judy Talking of Judy, I think uh, she was written to be weirder than the director took her as, and it doesn't translate well with the actor. She says something yeah. uh, at some point, she says, as my dad used to say, go organics. And then she pauses and goes, it was a bit odd for dad, and, he walk- and she walks off. And uh, I, I just kind sorry. of got that, but the director, possibly not so much. I think yeah. I disagree with that. Um, I think she was written like a, an over-eager mum, basically. That's what yeah. I got from her character. Um, and I think that quite a lot of these characters were written from not a perspective of factory working, but um, you know, like a, a monotonous, boring position. You've got um, like a, a tedious and overbearing boss who would be Slade. You've got an overeager manager who would be Judy. You've got these passive-aggressive middle managers, like the robot saying, you know, good conversation, guys, but... You know, get back to work, kind of thing. I, I completely agree. And, yeah, but I, I just and, think that Judy is meant to be. You mentioned the over enthusiastic, but I think she was meant to be sort of not, maybe weird was the wrong word, but but a bit mm. more. I think it's. I think it's fair. I think. Are you saying you had a problem with the way Judy was speaking? I see where this is going. I don't know what to say to that, Leo. Man, I just hated Judy. I can't stand Judy. It's Judy was so annoying. <laughs> yeah, I fucking hate Judy. It's really true that Judy is the source of all evil in the universe. Fuck Judy. Do you understand that I see you as a Judy? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, do you understand that in seeing you as a Judy, I refuse to participate in conversation with you? Brilliant. 
I've been waiting for this. I think uh, that there's, there's another moment worth mentioning that uh, I'd, I'd thought of yesterday. I hadn't really noticed it the first time. Um, but uh, when Yaz sort of says something about, no, it was, I think it's Ryan says something about uh, when they're in the office looking for sort of clues as to what Slade's motives are. He says, um, why don't we check in the drawers? And, and, and the doctor sort of goes, uh, the best detective in the galaxy. And I, I just think it was so overplayed. As if, like, as if they, they'd gone into the office and hadn't originally thought to check in the board. Imagine if she had delivered that line with utter McCoy levels of sarcasm. Mm. I think that quite a lot of her delivery, and especially in that scene, it's like she's been standing there with them for ages trying to think of a plan, and she's she's not come up with one for hours, and she's walked in there and she's like, oh, uh, what can we do? Um... And she, she's friend, she's frantic. She really isn't really thinking very well. That's what it came off to me as. I think something that bears um, mentioning is the incredible lack of hierarchy. Because it feels as though yeah. the Doctor's just waiting for them to say something that, you know, she already knows to, to do these things. She's been doing it for over 2,000 years now. And yeah. so, so, so it feels like she's waiting for these, because companions are often apprentices, right? So she's waiting yeah. for these people to pick up on on the things that she would typically know to do. And they're, they're taking fucking forever, man. They're, they're the type of people that Tennant would have had in the episode and that they would have begged to let him join, to, 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 to let them join him in the TARDIS. And he'd have gone, mm, nah, sorry. <laughs> it's a very interesting episode to bring up a lack of hierarchy over. Mm. They're just not smart enough. I think that's just. The, I think that's that's the truth of it. They are, they are not smart companions, and it's quite. Um, companions it's quite don't stark have to be smart. After, yeah, but it, it's just quite interesting to see that after all of Moffat's companions being very intuitive. Yeah, they don't really question many things. They don't even question the Doctor, which is really strange. Yeah, I think yeah. Partic- particularly Clara and Bill, who were very questioning and uh, and intuitive. Yeah, in- inquisitive and intuitive, and they, they would take things themselves, whereas Ryan and Yaz and, and Graham will all just accept the Doctor as the natural leader. Yeah. You know, the person that Twelve took in the TARDIS that these companions remind me of the most is probably Mr. Huffle. Who's that? Remember the little squeezy toy, I think. Yeah, the inanimate squeezy doll from the return of Doctor Mysterio. Amazing. Uh, I was thinking more they remind me of uh, Captain Gatiss. And his sort of unquestioning acceptance of the TARDIS being bigger on the inside and traveling through time. He just didn't care. He just did not care. He's like, oh, I okay. really like that, actually. I, I, I think they are quite similar to, to the captain. Yeah, he had bigger problems. They yeah. Bigger things. <laughs> well, so did they. I mean, dyspraxia and dead wife and, you know, that tragic childhood accident that left Yaz without a character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really rude. But true. I thought that their, their group cohesion was really good this episode. I thought they all yeah. they all seemed to be in step with each other, and the, they all seemed to work well. Um, yeah. Especially Tosin with Randit. They were all work on the conveyor belt scene that they seemed like they actually enjoyed each other's company more. Yeah, I do agree. I think although I haven't seen um, episode five and uh, I think episode four and five, sorry, uh, I. I think this is the first time I've seen the group engage with each other in, in a way that they appear to actually like each other. So would you say the characters aren't the problem? 
it's how people misuse and miswrite the characters that's the problem yeah they seem to be all over the place a bit they're um one episode they all have a good understanding of where they come from and what they want from each other and then one episode they're um you know they're completely the opposite end of the spectrum so it's about the way writers exploit the characters as opposed to yeah. the way the actors play the characters it's the writing can i make a point actually about inconsistency because those two lines i noticed in this episode that were really funny in the context of every other episode so the first one was um when yaz makes says the line it's tough being away from family well completely forgetting that that's the exact reason she joined the tardis team and yeah. then and then we also have the doctor saying the line don't like bullies don't like conspiracies don't like people being in danger but just a few episodes ago in arachnids in the uk she specifically said i love a conspiracy so <laughs> what's that it's that writer's room set up it's really mm. being so useful do you know what it reminds me of dying well who wants to die well oh yes i know what you're referring to Th- yeah that was inconsistent between those two shows those two titans of bbc programming I think, to be fair, it probably works of the Doctor, and I think even in in Thirteen's case, it does work. It is the Doctor just talks shit most of the time. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking of when I was considering it earlier. It's like I'll forgive that sort of because the Doctor is sometimes uh, hypocritical, I guess, and especially Thirteen oh, yeah. so far has been quite hypocritical. I love that stuff. Um, the Doctor is sort of typically would just mouth off. Yeah, and they tend to say things that, you know, are maybe not always so consistent. But I just think it's really, really funny that you've got these two lines that are so similar, except they're saying completely different things, all within a few (laughs) episodes of each other. Like, I could understand if maybe it was a series apart, but this is literally, it was Arachnids and Kablam, and she goes from saying... Yeah, the the difference between class and and oxygen is that it's an entire TV series. It doesn't come across as intentional. Like it would be interesting if like this sort of inconsistency it was something that was really thought about and maybe in, incorporated into the character, but it doesn't come across that way because there's nothing necessarily referencing the fact that she's previously said she loves conspiracies. It's just put in there and, and we're meant to accept it as a fact, even though she's com- said the complete opposite before. Like it, it's just so <laughs> It's so weird and so inconsistent, and also you see the same problem with the Yaz line. And I don't, I don't know if she was just trying to empathise with the Max character, and that's why she said it. But I just thought it was quite ironic, given that that was her entire reason for joining. I mean, aside from wanting to spend time with the Doctor, I suppose. I don't know. It's just, it's just so weird, and it's funny that it is a writers' room this series, and it doesn't come across that way. It's like they're not having conversations with each other and deciding on a consistent characterization for all of the TARDIS team. I can't wrap my head around it. The family thing is similar to what she said in The Ghost Monument, to be fair. Where, like, I, I oh, can't remember exactly true. the line, but there is something that she says yeah. on the ship to well, um, yeah. episode. I thought it was Angstrom. Possibly, no. I don't know. What One of the fucking two. Well, even if there was a line in the Ghost Monument, then in that case, then Arachnids would be the outlier. So there's still yeah. this inconsistency. So even if there was like, if her missing her family was something that made sense, you've suddenly got this episode right in the middle with Arachnids, where suddenly she can't, you know, she's desperate to be away from them. And then also you've got demons into the mix, where she clearly cares about her family a lot. I don't, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I, I can't really work out what Yaz actually feels about her family because... You know, I do have a theory which is that arachnids in the UK might be badly written. That's true. <laughs> I haven't initially true. thought of that. 
maybe this is the outlier. Arachnids is really shit, and it doesn't really know how to handle the characters. Possibly I think could extend that to the whole series. Maybe this is a bad series of Doctor Who. It's quite possible. Aside from a few episodes. Maybe this is just a shit show, as, and I say that as a fan. It's 2010, come again. This is just cancelled. I, 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 I am a firm believer in that the natural history of fear is the only good Doctor Who episode. That's fair. That's I can't fair. argue. I can't argue. I mean, I think the only good Doctor Who episode is the uh, second episode of Miracle Day. What about specials? I did catch that. What about specials? Uh, and I think <laughs> possibly only twice upon a time. What about Dimensions because, in because Time? Because Twice Upon a Time oh, yeah. threatens to kill Doctor Who. And it should have. I assume it did. Yeah, everything after this is just a dream. It makes sense. Well, I mean, we've been in a dream since at least last Christmas. I think uh, I've, I've said before in the in thread and people uh, didn't take too kindly to it, but um, there's, a, there's a distinction between the Doctor and Doctor Who, and 13 doesn't feel like Doctor Who. Does, do any of you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a thematic disconnect. <laughs> I thought you were going to the nurse route when you started that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, uh, on my nurse's WhatsApp group, perhaps. Well, is it time that we get into... Not yet. Okay. I got... Uh, I feel uh, like I'm talking a little bit about the guest stars. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, like yeah, the, with... the guest star that lasted, what, how long? Ten minutes? Well, I mean, I would also include uh, Judy. But I do want to talk about Lee Mack a little bit. I think that it's cruel that the BBC is again casting him as a working class lout who's being deceived by a cruel, foolish, upper class, overeducated little snot. <laughs> and I think that really the, the only way it could be worse is if there was a tiny little Welshman in the corner demeaning him and making fun of him the whole time. It's like when Alan Davies was on that radio show and the, he pressed the soundboard and the QI klaxon went off and he started crying because it's now in his whole life. Mm. I I think the people making a, a noise about Lee Mac dying quite early, it's, it's not like this is the first time Doctor Who has ever killed off a guest star in the first, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty strapped on... Um, Trying to figure out when they've actually done that, but if I had, if I'd written it down beforehand, um, but it, this isn't the first time they've ever done this, so I'm not entirely surprised. Although I would have liked to have seen a lot more of Lee Mac and maybe switch some of the plots around for it. Although they didn't kill him, there is that guest character in in the Ghost Monument who only got what I think it was about five minutes of screen time if you yeah. put it all together. Art Malik. That's it. Yeah. With Lee Mac, it's that. Uh... There's no clear reason why Redacted had to Redacted him because Redacted's plan was already all set up and operational and he yeah. was in control of the robots. So it feels pretty contrived that the character had to die at all beyond just setting up trauma in the episode. Well, I mean, I happen to know from uh, history that Lee Mack is actually quite good at puzzling out lies and deceptions. So am I the only person who watches Would I Lie to You? Because I'm getting nothing from you guys. No, I, I, I watched it. <laughs> I thought you were talking about not going out for a minute. <laughs> um, I think that he got on quite well with... Um, I forgot what her name is. Yasmin. Um, she's, so, she's so forgettable, <laughs> she's I just forgot her name. Um, 
I think she got he got on really well with her, and I would have liked to have seen maybe him interact with Graham or Ryan a little bit more, maybe even the Doctor, because I thought, well, yeah, he's quite a draw to the episode, and to kill him off so quickly maybe a bit of a problem, but um, he was quite good in the scenes he was in, and I would have liked to have seen him a lot further into the episode, even if he'd have ended up the same way just a little bit later on, like they get split up by accident, or some of them go to do one thing, and he's going to go to the other group to help them, but he gets waylaid and killed off screen or something. It almost feels like he was included for that brief time, just so they could sort of fit in that sort of emotional scene at the end on the TARDIS, you know, the necklace yeah. and everything. Um, and it is a shame because Lee Mack was really good, he was interesting, and I was quite excited for the episode, you know, just because of him being in it. But it really does feel like he was he was only there to serve the purpose of adding a tearjerker at the end of the episodes, you know, so to sort of tie up with, you know, tie it all up with a little bow. But, Maybe um, even more than that, they, he could have just been there to go, look, star name, look, watch this episode. If you like Lee Mack, watch this, you'll enjoy it. And then he's, yeah. he's sort of like, hi, I'm Lee Mack. Uh, oh, no, I mean, I'm this character instead. And then he ends up dying <laughs> about 10 minutes later. And it's like, oh, well, was that it? Yeah, it was He's like the monks in uh, Tooth and Claw. Yeah. <laughs> We're two thirds into it, so I think it's the time to discuss. One other thing that would get completely, that would otherwise get completely bowled over. Okay, Mirrors, go ahead. So the Kerblam men, uh, they, I really liked the costume. I yeah. thought it was mildly shameless of them to so heartily uh, so uh, sorry wholeheartedly rip off the working joes from alien isolation yeah but you know i mean it, and it's not like you can hide it because you always know working joe but i guess i can't expect much considering the ending of the pating dilemma was exactly the same as the ending of alien isolation always <laughs> <laughs> Just blow that in space. Um, I've got a point or two to make before we move on. Sure, sure. Right. Yep. Um, I'm just going through my notes quick. Um, I like that... No, not that. That's a shit one. Um, one of the points that I made was um, the Kablam men's glowing blue eyes was very... Uh, it was almost like a direct parallel to the Vok robots where their eyes glow. Um, I thought that they he was playing quite a lot off the Vok robots, you know, they're, they're, they're subservient robots, they fulfill the will of the people who own them, and mm-hmm. in that story, they're painting the robots as, the, oh, they're all evil, they're completely mad, but in this story, they've done that as well, it's all it's the robots that are the fault. Oh, actually, it's someone else instead. Reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Voyage of the Damned in that respect. Mm-hmm. Um, my last point that I'll make before you go on further, is that the character of um, Slade, in his first scene, he's berating Kira quite... He's not berating her, he's being quite rude to her. But he's berating her like a slave driver. And his name's very similar to Slade. uh, Slade and Slave. And I thought that was quite a... That's probably just me picking that up. I think we're trending towards the forbidden topic. Yeah. I I agree. I really... He was a really sort of over-the-top red herring... Mm. And you, did you notice the other significant thing about Slade, which is uh, he's wearing Diagoras's suit from Daleks in Manhattan, black pinstripe suit, oh, the yeah. speckled 
undershirt. He's it, it was kind of transparent. I thought. I don't know how I missed that one. It's it was the first thing I noticed, and I stood up and pointed it out in the middle of the living room, like an idiot. It's a very tenant. It's a very tenant heavy episode. Mm. Okay, well, which uh, and, probably works with with McTighe being a RTD Chad, as is obvious from uh, other things. But another good red herring I noticed was uh, earlier we were talking about how. Judy is strange, and Judy is obviously a problem. Uh, she very conspicuously uses the word mercenary in like the first two minutes of the episode, and it stands out quite a lot on your first viewing. It seems like a weird word to choose out of all yeah. the words you could possibly use. And of course it ends up being a red herring, but mm. I think that'll dovetail into our next topic. Lovely. I can actually feel Leo itching to talk about the politics here. <laughs> I can't hold it in anymore. <laughs> he keeps flashing his light back on, ready to talk about the politics. Actually, I want to keep go- <laughs> I, I want to keep teasing him like we did Gig in the in the other episode. If anyone's got any more points to make, by the way, I'd be quite uh, I'd be quite happy to. Apply. Yeah, I really hate the way Jodie uses her Sonic. Yeah. I really, really hate it. It's like a superhero pose every single time she pulls yeah. and uses it. Oh, and it's so contrived. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was most obvious how ridiculous it was with the scene in the office where she, um, what was she pointing at? Was it the filing cabinets or something? Was yeah. Uh, <laughs> she she does the big pose and everything, and then immediately, like just as soon as her arms down, she jumps into action, and it yeah really drew mm-hmm. drew attention to the fact that she does this big swinging arm pose. It, I don't Did know. Did she do it twice in quick succession? Like every single episode she uses it, she always does the exact same way, and it doesn't feel natural. It feels like she's trying to make a big deal out of the fact that the Sonic is yeah, being cool. used. Yeah, but the Sonic shouldn't be a big deal, you know. It's just it's just a tool, not some, or it shouldn't be a magic wand essentially. But that's how series eleven is considering, uh, you know, uh, portraying it. But then it's been the sort of solution to so many of the episodes so far, and so many plots yeah. that. I guess that's why it's getting so much focus. I... Leo's light is green. <laughs> I sort of like it. I sort of like the fact that she does the over... I don't like it a lot, but I like that it's like a flair that she's developed over yeah. time. If it was once or twice, I could get over it. The fact that it's repeated, I'm not much of it's a like, fan of it. It's but, like um, affectation. Yeah. If she's doing this all the time... She could be in the middle of dire peril. She'd go to do it, but she'd be dead before she gets the chance to, you know, even use the Sonic. She's flaring so much. Yeah, I actually <laughs> like it. <'cause... laughs> I actually... <laughs> sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, it reminds me... I actually like it. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, Matt Smith's insane Wiimote waggling that he would do whenever he was sonicking something. Wiimote waggling. Yeah, Matt Smith's whole entire physical characterization was based on that sort of madness and weird wiggling energy. And Jody doesn't really bring the same level of ultimate swagger to everything she does in yeah. the way that she does the, mm-hmm. the Sonic uh, presentation. 
It's like she's trying to be really heroic every single time she uses the Sonic. But when she just point out a filing cabinet or something, it's just or a door that's off yeah. screen that we never get to see, it, it just kind of falls flat, you know. I'd I'd forgive it if it was in the big moments where the Sonic was actually important, but it's no, it's just constant. Speaking of what's actually important, well, that brings <laughs> us important. to about an hour. I guess we should uh, wrap it up now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> Get, How do we feel about Twirly? I want her to be the next companion. I love Twirly. Twirly, next is, companion. Twirly is critical for the political discussion. So <laughs> now that we finally landed to a point where I can say fuck Pete, in all honesty, we need to address 13 saying, the systems aren't the problem, how people use and exploit the system, that's the problem. And there's a lot we can touch on here in terms of how even the specific politics aside, how setting 13 is not an agent of change or revolution, but uh, in a non-loaded sense of the term reactionary, or in a loaded sense of the term reactionary, passive permissant of change, and how that fits into the Doctor's previous characterizations. Uh, little grace notes like the three working class guest characters dying and the two boss characters surviving and then giving the remaining faceless working class characters two weeks of paid leave, but four weeks of no work. <laughs> and the fact that 13 sees that as a victory as well. Yeah, yeah. 13 oh, explicitly God. supporting a system. W walks away kind of with a bit of a swagger with her companions, like, yep, we've saved the day. Yeah. And that's the system she's shilling is the one that killed an innocent woman to make a point. Which 13 even says, like in kind of that odd tone, it took her knowing how you felt about her to show how it would feel. The oh, fact that the robots that. didn't even need to explode the bubble wrap, their robots meant the moving things, and no one explicitly told Charlie that he was going to die down there, and <laughs> she didn't have to make the dramatic moment of the robots clashing it. It's also the system that, uh, that, that, that called the Doctor for help, and, and the system itself is symbolic of capitalism. So, it, what what gets me is that the calling for help thing, like this is directly, Pete can't pretend he wasn't doing this, you know, harness style, although I believe harness, but anyway, Pete can't I pretend don't. that the help me line wasn't referencing stuff, uh, like when that 13 year old in the UK in her Amazon invoice found the note calling her boss is evil and asking for help in real life, or the Michigan woman that found in that. underwear the note scrawled help me that she ordered from Philippines, or that woman in Arizona a few years ago that found a letter from Chinese prisoners inside a purse that she bought at Walmart. Like these are all, this is a real thing that happens. Help me getting yeah. scrolled inside yeah. places from warehouses. Pete was coasting off that to make his point about the episode. So we can't divest saying this episode isn't political because he was absolutely setting up relevant connections yeah. aesthetically. And what, what kind of, what really verged me with that is that the whole first two acts set up that it was a, it was a worker calling for help. The reason Graham and, and Yaz were so adamant that the Doctor should go was because there was somebody asking for help, that they needed to go and save the day. And they actually go into the into the warehouse as workers to infiltrate the system. And they, and they, they keep up that pretense for the, for the entire first two acts of the episode for a good uh, 35 minutes. What I think it comes down to is that Pete is a big Doctor Who fan. Like, that's clear. And I think... He was, he was writing an episode that started off in the tradition of, you know, Paradise Towers or Planet mm. of the Ude, that kind of thing. And so the first two acts were showing, like, this is a political and social system that has problems and, you know, there's enemies evident to that and the Doctor's investigating and things. But then Pete 
possibly because he's like us and that he's experienced so much Doctor Who, he likes flipping it around. He thought, what if I subvert that normal template of how these stories are told? And so at the end, it's actually the system that's good and it's the person going against the system that's bad. But the problem is, this isn't taking he place in a vacuum. Like, he subverted our expectations. But this story was touching on actual politics, which means when he oh, yeah. subverted or inverted it, that means he is supporting the system that he already set up as bad. And I think he was so into... I sort of imagine it as being as if Milso would would, uh, would have written an episode. <laughs> well, hey, I, hey now. I, I think the problem is he, he sets up the system as bad and then he subverts it. I think... I think that's unfair. I don't think that Nilso's that good at characterization. I wouldn't even put a political. <laughs> if I was writing an episode, I wouldn't do it because if I did it, I'd know that I'd fuck it up. So <laughs> I wouldn't. I just avoid the subject entirely. I just say, "Well, okay, fine. Whatever you want, go for it." The thing that gets me is Pete even had something of a solution built into the episode with Twirly, who initially complains about you know without upselling my only purpose is delivery, and then the character said, "And we don't need that." And this reflects how the episode is dealing with you know the automation crisis and people losing opportunities for actual work, and how this isn't sustainable in the systems we're going in. Twirly's lost his purpose because he could only work one type of work that people mm. can't do anymore because a superior AI said that too. replaced him. But then Thirteen fixes him so he can do something better. When he says retrieve and deliver, I understand he gets a new purpose that's synthesized. It, you know the society around him yeah. has to change specific to that situation and then his purpose has to change but then he can keep on thriving but the episode doesn't take the twirly route for some reason it keeps the system exactly the same as it is and it just has 13 endorse it so it's like pete even had a you know a tiny little reflection of what could have been the proper or a more coherent thematically ending to the episode but then he ignored it even though it was in acute robot form and everything the Doctor yeah. stopping Charlie, uh, it completely makes sense because what, there, there is no reason that the Doctor would have let him kill thousands of people, kill thousands of innocent people. Mm, yeah. That makes complete sense. But the fact that the Doctor didn't then bring Charlie back up or at least get get the robot, um, teleport the robot somewhere else and explain to Charlie that she was going to help him in his freedom fighting cause, which is something yeah. that the Doctor would have done as a literal, he's built as, a, the, the Doctor is, as a character, is built as a socialist, or at least somebody who uh, doesn't agree with totalitarian systems. Yeah. The, the, there's so many inconsistencies with Charlie, like if he's such a brilliant, you know, master planner of the evil arts, how come he helped Graham steal that map? You know, if he can get to the center of the moon so easily to set up that robot army, how come he had to clumsily take the conveyors down? Like, I feel like the, epi the episode was- written backwards to support the twist being surprising about Charlie when it doesn't really sync up. Like, we kind of predicted this because there was nothing put in place to make it work. But go, what's, what's your theory? I didn't expect it at all. I, could, I was completely surprised by the actual twist. I wasn't expecting that at all. I was expecting the system to be evil as it had been set up. Yeah, I'm completely in, I'm, I'm in the same boat as Nilso. I expected the whole freedom fighter thing to be... Uh, I expected what I just said. I expected the Doctor to help. Um, Charlie and his cause, but not let him kill thousands of people. And then it would take the anti-terrorism route, but the sort of working class freedom route as well. The only thing in the episode that indicated that Charlie could be an evil serial killer is the fact that he regularly sniffed Kira. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a quite an odd... Um, I think it was, my, it was meant to be written in like an an affectation kind of way. He was, yeah, he was being nice about her. Yeah. But he, he's a bit awkward and he's not entirely great with it. But um, it, it did come across as slightly, oh, okay, that's an odd detail to pick up of anything yeah. you could ever pick up. You could say, oh, she's got nice hair, nice eyes, 
He can say anything, but he goes, smile, and it's like, oh, okay. Um, I think it would have been fair to take it as a light sort of Chekhov's gun in that that he was just being a bit weird. Yeah. But but, but I think in retrospect, it is a a form of foreshadowing, but I don't know, it doesn't really land with the whole he's a lethal terrorist aspect. I don't genuinely believe it was threatened. Mirrors, what was your theory? I suppose I should have saved this for later. And this isn't a theory that I'm totally sold on. Are we sure that how do we pronounce his last name? McTie? McTeege? I'm going McTie. McTie. It's possible. I'm not totally selling myself on this theory. This is just a theory I'm throwing out there. Is it possible that McTie isn't the one who wrote the ending? Seeing as there's this whole other writer's room with a huge chin ball in the room? Mm. It, was, it is entirely possible, yeah, that, that, he'd, he'd, that he'd written the idea or that he'd been commissioned the idea and he'd had a different... Uh, approach to the politics of the episode and in uh, the neoliberal kind of uh, politics of the whole series he'd sort of been told let's kind of scrape it into this kind of into this direction I, I, I doubt it because Chibnall we can see from his earlier work that his sort of social views uh, like I think there is an interesting pattern in the series of being very uh, well, I, I guess yeah conservative in the sense that it's about deferring to and respecting systems like how she leaves history unchanged in Rosa and in Demons and how and the way she's so verged by Tim Shaw cheating in the first episode like it's it's like she singles that out as a bad thing not even not just the hunt itself but the fact he was cheating it or the way she lets Robertson go in Arachnids there is an interesting pattern of Chibnall letting systems go like contrast that even to idea to of ten- the morality of, sort yeah. of stepping aside and uh, uh, the virtue of um, non-interference which I'm not sure that that's... I feel like that's come up before in this series. It's quite inconsistent with the Doctor as a character, though. They've always been an agent for change, so why is 13 suddenly so passive in everything? It's such the wrong time to do it. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and the Doctor has always kind of had a, uh, a relationship with revolution, albeit sometimes tentative. And uh, so the fact that the, the Doctor should now, for the first time ever, be completely against change in the favour of the masses is, uh, it goes against everything that Doctor has ever been. It's, it's not even a political thing, it's just that it's so odd to have a Doctor that permits everything rather than tries to change things. Mm. A, a Doctor that fully sort of respects authority when previously, you know, they've never been one to sort of blindly follow and accept the way things are. If they see people being hurt in some way or just being negatively impacted, they will happily make the change, you know? Whereas mm-hmm. in this sort of, um, in this series so far, and I'm not saying I disagree with the fact that she was passive, for example, in Demons and Rosa, because I understand why she was, but this whole series, we've just had this consistent idea that she just doesn't want it want to interfere she just sort of sits back and lets things play out which isn't really what the doctor has ever been um and again like i'm it makes sense if it's like to preserve the way that history sort of played out and it ultimately leads to a better future um which is something that could have been covered in kablam because you said oxygen style 
Yeah, you could have had a line at least at the end where she, you know, maybe Yaz or someone says, you know, Doctor, aren't you going to help the workers? Seeing as you've just spent in the entire episode up until this certain point, yeah, Kablamas, why aren't you going to help them? <laughs> and then she, and then she takes them into the future where there's yeah. an asteroid named Kira. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's like, but it's like that idea. She could have had a line saying, yeah, it's horrible now, or at least not so good for the workers at this this moment in time. But in future. It, I think the way to reconcile it was something Kind Anonymous said in Thread when he said We need based Matheson to do an oxygen novelization where it's revealed Kablam is the parent company. Yeah. Oh, that so good. That would genuinely that would- be so good. And it would make sense, you know? Because eventually, like, if you tie these two things together, you essentially have Kablam event- eventually becoming this company that, you know, reaches horrible levels and of the flesh exploitation. Yeah, and then and then eventually you get to a point where the future will be brighter, but it just takes some time to get there, and that's why the Doctor didn't interfere. But right now in Kablam, she just leaves things as they are, even though she knows how horrible they are for the workers. Do you think that for Charlie and for the working class in, in the episode, uh, and on Kandoka especially, that the Doctor was a pillar of hope? <laughs> even if you take all the specific politics of the Kablam itself out, the is 13 endorsing a system that killed Kira? You know what else I realised? Kira is literally only in the story to serve as a plot device to Charlie. Despite the fact that we meet her first and are already given time to sympathise with her, she's tossed away just to make Charlie's whole breakdown a little bit more tragic. Kira says completely straight that working gives people, like us, purpose. This isn't challenged by the Doctor or the episode. What did Pete mean by this? Because the episode never shows any evidence for the contrary. In Pete's perfect world, everyone who was slaving away at the job, only getting to see their family two times a year, would continue to live that miserable existence, only this time with people instead of robots around them. Oh, God. No, so were you going to say something? Oh, yeah. Um, I was going to say that the system in this story is written very strangely. It, it takes a massive gamble with the fact that it, it knows throughout the entire story that Charlie's planning this. He's going to send out all these things to kill people. And instead of sending this little help me slip to something like the military or something, or to like a general waiting in a pair of shoes saying, saying, help me, or it didn't even need to say help me, it could just say, so-and-so is planning to do this at this time, please arrest them. It doesn't need to spend the entire episode playing a game. Mm-hmm. You can just go straight out, do it, okay, go and tell them, oh, Charlie is going to kill everyone on Kandoka or across the galaxy arrest him and then it plays this game with kira and kills her in front of him and it's a very strange thing for it to do because it could just he could turn around and say right doing it right this second i'm gonna kill everyone he sends it out they all go and kill hundreds of thousands of people across the system but it, it's, a, it's like a zero-sum game there's no point of them or there's no point of the system doing that it'll just it, it there's the off chance of him deliberately killing everyone at the exact moment she dies. Yeah, like, the well, Kira thing didn't make sense to me at all. Um, mostly because... Uh, sorry, Neo, I'm just going to say this quickly. Mostly because we're meant to believe that the system is somehow sympathetic. We're meant to somehow, you know, empathise with this, you know, system that's essentially being exploited. But then it goes ahead and it murders someone just to make a point. And... and mm. 
the context it's presented in as well as the doctor says it killed Kiris because it understood that killing someone causes a lot of pain so it killed her so that Charlie would understand but if it understands the pain that murder causes why did it kill Kira knowing that it was going to hurt people knowing that it was going to hurt her family because I can only assume that she's got family she's got people outside of Charlie so it was like bizarre logic in, in that moment, thirteen completely justifies the killing of Kira. Yeah. she says that it's yeah. um, that, that it was to make you understand, Charlie. They did it to make you understand. So it's fine. It was murder of an innocent, and she stands there and she says uh, that it just makes complete sense. She what, accepts what it. What Kablam did was no different to what Charlie did, and yet the Doctor yeah. chose Kablam over Charlie to support. Not that I'm saying it's acceptable. I'm not. Not that I'm saying it's acceptable for what assistant because killing her is a big problem whether or not Charlie's involved but the fact that it, it, it thinks that the ends justify the means not that it is acceptable for that to be the case but it sort of goes right okay if we can get him to understand then killing her or all these people is worth it because in the end he won't do it but yeah, it's, it's a, sort of the trolley problem. You know, you kill mm. one to save more. But on the same note, it invited the doctor there to sort things out. And as things turned out, all those people didn't die. So Kira ultimately died for nothing because they're sort of... You can understand it from the system's point of view, but you've still got a, a, a character uh, essentially being... A female character essentially being fridged, you know, for, yeah. for the Absolutely. sake of... Mm, a man, you know, man pain essentially. You know, I'm just going to use that yeah. term. So you're weaponized. You're, yeah. It's nearly as bad as Face the Raven. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's like this. Uh, this episode is is it doesn't exist in a bubble. So maybe if this was this was real and the system was thinking that way, then okay, you know, sure, I could understand why it would you know choose what it did in this so-called trolley problem. I but have a theory. Pete was still writing it in this way. He was still conscious of the fact he was killing off a, a character for a pointless reason. Like, Kira's death didn't have to happen because it contributed absolutely nothing aside from pushing the plot forward enough, you know, so that Charlie would, you know, essentially raise the stakes. He made say was it like a genius. Yeah. Mira's, <laughs> <laughs> say uh, your theory. Okay. Is it possible? I suppose it's not possible. It's the intended reading. It seems like the system is aware that violence, even to the point of murder, can be used for political ends. So the system is uh, directly mirroring Charlie's actions by killing someone in order to make a greater point. And it's monstrous, and it's uh, there's a huge problems with it, but I think that's what's going on with Kira. I think the issue with that is however it was intended, or however you take it, 13 endorsing it is just so out of character for the it's Doctor. It's go all over again. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of... It's just, it's clever, it knows what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, ex Speaking of politically dodgy characters starting with K, another thing Kinda said was... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's against the episode because of nitpicks. The ending literally falls apart and is completely inconsistent with the start of the episode. You can like things with wildly different politics to your own if the thing is actually good without needing to agree with those politics to think that it's good. My point here is that the ending of Kablam is only good if you completely agree with the politics. Otherwise, to any normal person, it's a complete mess of an ending. Don't get me wrong, I think the episode was good. It just lost the plot for me towards the end. If you took it completely apolitically, it's a fine episode with an interesting twist. 
but some of the lines, like the doctor literally saying the system is fine, is too on the nose, regardless of your political leanings, to be considered well thought out writing. No, I, I get that. That sounds pretty much what I think. I, I understand that, and I, I think if you're not, um, if you're not somebody who would have been, I don't want to say offended, but but a bit kind of off put by the idea of the episode not being in in, in, in the political favour of of, um, of what Doctor Who normally is, then to, to feel that way, it, it makes sense for, for anybody who isn't of the same political persuasion. I actually have a, a post here from someone who doesn't have a problem with the uh, end of the episode. Uh, he starts his uh, post with... No, well, I actually don't know. I don't, uh, I, I don't actually know who Judy is. Uh, so this person... Uh, begins their post with um, all the guest cast was white, not just the villain, and that was pretty cool. So that's the sort of person that we're reaching with this episode. That's the sort of person that appreciates this episode. This person uh, also, this sort of person who I guess we would call them uh, Kerblam fans. Here's some other things that Kerblam fans, li fans like to say. Uh, implying selling things automatically makes you capitalist. <laughs> Uh, uh, I'm slowly realizing a lot of these critics are a, a lot of these critics actually are Antifa sympathizers who really would kill random people if they thought it would make a dent in capitalism, which is a worrying thought. Aliens Among Us is a fairly right-wing series that I quite enjoyed. I know it's stated multiple times that it's totally different from Foreigners and it has the existing Torchwood gay stuff, but at its heart, it's very pro-borders and appealed to my sensibilities. Torchwood gay stuff. Yeah. RCD and Goss designed a very right-wing series. <laughs> it's not a bad message if intended. So many refugees and migrants are disgustingly ungrateful and make no effort to ingratiate themselves because they know they have a protected status in their host country. <laughs> series 11 Fuck had me. many redeemable <laughs> elements so far. Yaz, Ryan's gags, arachnids in the UK, Pating, etc. And we just had a brilliant episode. So yes, I am defending Series 11, especially since we have four episodes yet to come. Mirrors, you've really done your research. Should have been a moment of celebration, was ruined by autistic commie nitpicking. <laughs> this person has been very vocal in the last few days, and I think it's, it's very strange that this episode is the one that sets them off. And I've never seen that this poster behave this way before. And all of a sudden, it's crazy. I think this next one might give away the game. I think I've cracked the code here. I don't know. Frankly, I don't care. I thought it was just a way to have a feel-good ending. I thought about none of these things after I saw the episode. I didn't even think it was controversial. I thought everyone would join me in the McTie Love Fest, LOL. So that's the sort of person that this episode appeals to uncomplicatedly. Pete McTie. Fuck Pete. On that note, I think it's a good point to wrap things up. I have one more thing to say, but if anyone else has something to say, you should go first. Nah, I'm alright. Oh, actually, I got two things to say. Uh, go ahead. I charged you with a holy duty, Neo, and you neglected it, so it's now fallen to me to bring it up. The villain of this piece is a millennial with an extensive education in a variety of fields, both professional and academic, but can only get a job in maintenance at Amazon. Oof. That's the villain. That's the bad guy. Is 
the avocado toast generation. Ugh. And the good guy is the boss that berated. Yeah. <laughs> the boss that verbally beat down a little girl and who the doctor very, very explicitly called a bad boss and a bad manager. Well, she would know. Are we saying that the anti-tag is Azuma? Uh, the the anti-tag is a boomer and the pro-tag is Azuma? Yeah. Yeah. What was your second thought, Mirrors? Okay. So... Neo. Yes. Neo. Yes. God strike me down for speaking this forbidden word, but I am verged. You reckless monster. <laughs> you know that meme magic is real. You were here for Danny Splink. You were here when the wiki was deleted. You made Nilsa's future a fucking nightmare and didn't even consider that we'd all be sharing it. You are not just playing f with forces you don't understand. You're jerking off with the monkey's paw here, Neo. <laughs> first, first you memed this episode into being bad with your fuck Pete campaign. I blame this whole thing on you, by the way. Do you understand that? That you have caused this, Neo. But don't you see it's so much bigger than that? Because it's not a bad episode. It's it's well written, but ill-intended. It's It's constructed properly but it's got this dangerous message at its heart Neo Neo it's good but <laughs> it's good but it's evil <laughs> that was great very good well you. Mirrors you're the only person I've messaged that thing about the next episode so everyone else <laughs> can live in blissful ignorance for now <laughs> Very cliche.